As we continue through the final portions of the Sermon on the Mount, we've been noticing <clears throat> a series of warnings that Jesus gives as he um, is nearing the conclusion of this sermon. In verses um, 13 and 14 of chapter 7, we saw the warning to beware of the broad road that leads to destruction. And then in the following verses, verses 15 to 19, the warning was beware of false prophets that lead to destruction. Verses 21 to 23, beware of self-deception that leads to destruction. And then the final verses are a call to obedience, not just hearing, but doing, or perhaps we could say they are also a warning to beware of indifference that will also lead to destruction. Someone pointed out that the, um, the warning about the two roads has to do with the beginning of our Christian life and the choices that we make. Strive to enter in at the straight gate. The decisions you make at the beginning are important. And then the warning, the next warning, has to do with the middle of our life and the fruit that we bear throughout our journey. And the warning in today's passage has to do with what we will face when we reach the end of our journey, the destination, and when we meet our Lord and what his response will be to us. So today we want to look at the third of these three warnings, beware of self-deception. And as I look at these verses, you know, there, there's a certain question that's involved here. Well, what about these people? It seemed they had one impression that uh, their impressions were not true. It seems they were, were deceived or something. And as I look at this, I realize that God's requirement is clear. And that's the first point we want to look at here this morning. God's requirement is clear. In verse 21, we see that the people that this passage is referring to made a profession. Jesus said, not everyone that says, Lord, Lord. So these people are making a profession of Jesus as Lord. But God's requirement is clear. And the first thing we see here is that God is not looking only for a profession. He is not only looking for impressive words. Now, a profession is good. The Bible teaches that a profession is necessary. Romans 10 tells us that we need to confess Christ. Jesus himself said, if you're ashamed of me and of my name, I will be ashamed of you. We need to profess Christ. However, God is not looking only for a profession. He does not say to these people, depart from me because you never professed me. He's looking for something more than a profession. So addressing God as Lord, Lord alone does not meet the requirement. Now, there are many people who acknowledge God as Lord. I think most of us here are here because we acknowledge God. In fact, most of our peers, most of the people around us will acknowledge God. They may do that in different ways. They may acknowledge God simply by sitting through a church service on Sunday morning. They might acknowledge him by bowing their heads for prayer before a meal. They might acknowledge him by writing Bible verses on their living room wall. 
They might acknowledge him by putting money in the offering or by donating to charity. They might even acknowledge God by being baptized and joining the church. And these are all good. They're good things. They're not wrong. Jesus does not condemn these things. But Jesus is looking for more than a profession. A profession alone is not sufficient. There's more required. Jesus tells us that more is required. In verse 23, or in verse 21, um, he says, we also need to do the will of my Father, Jesus said. He that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Well, you might say, that sounds like we can earn our way to heaven by works. If it's simply a matter of doing, Jesus did not say it is simply a matter of doing. It's a matter of doing the will of the Father. And there's a big difference between doing and doing the will of the Father. Well, you might ask, what is the will of the Father? We'll get to that a bit later. But first of all, we notice here that God is not looking only for a profession. We see that in verse 21. In verse 22, we move on. And in this verse, we see people that performed. They did things. They did lots of things. But that wasn't enough either. So God is not looking only for a performance or for impressive works. He doesn't tell these people, depart from me because you never did any works for me. That's not what he said. Submitting a resume of accomplishments does not meet the requirement that God is looking for. So if we want to make sure that we are not deceiving ourselves, what is God expecting? Well, it's not just a profession. It's not just a performance. Now, the people in verse 22 are people who do more than simply acknowledge God passively. They get involved. They do things. These may be people who don't simply sit through a church service. They may teach a Sunday school class. They may stand up at the end of the service two or three times a month and give a testimony. It says they prophesy in Christ's name. They may be on the food committee or the outreach committee. They may give food to every beggar they meet at Walmart. They may help to build schools and churches and hospitals. They do many wonderful works. And these are good things. They're not wrong. Jesus does not condemn them. The implication here is that they are good things. They're noteworthy things to do. But Jesus does indicate that extraordinary works alone are not enough. There's more that's required. So if Jesus is not looking only for a profession, he's not looking only for a performance, just what is he looking for? And I think we see that indication in verse 23. Jesus is looking for a partnership or for a relationship, for a connection, a relationship with us. See, what he says here in verse 23 is, the people that are rejected will be rejected because I never knew you. I never had that relationship with you. So now we come back to that question in verse 21. What is the will of the Father? The will of the Father is to have a relationship with us, with his people. Do you know God? Does God know you? 
Is there that connection? Nahum 1 verse 7 says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust him. You see, there's a relationship there. There's a working together. John chapter 10, verses 14 and also in 27, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. There's that connection, that relationship, and then the following comes after. The obedience comes after. Someone said, heard the statement this week, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. The people in verse 21 were making a religion of their profession. Lord, Lord, that was their religion, professing Christ. The people in verse 22 were making a religion of their performance. Have we not cast out devils? Have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not done many wonderful works? You see, their religion was performing, but those religions did not work. Those religions were not enough. In verse 23, we see what is really necessary is a relationship, that thing of, of knowing God and connecting with him. I was thinking about these verses this week, and 1 Corinthians chapter 13 kind of... Um, took on a, a new aspect of meaning for me. I, I saw 1 Corinthians 13 from a new perspective. You're aware 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. And I know for myself, probably most of us, when we think about this chapter, we think of our relations with each other, among the brotherhood, with our brothers and sisters. But might that chapter also apply to our relationship with God? Isn't it just as true there? Think about the first verse of that chapter. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, that is profession. I'm speaking with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love. If I don't have love for my God, it is all worthless. So that verse tells us that profession without relationship, without love for God, is not enough. Then we move on to verse 3. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned. That is performance. That is works. That's doing good things. But if I do it without love, if I don't have that relationship with God, it's not enough. So again, we see that performance without relationship is not enough, without that relationship with God. But then at the end of the chapter, or near the end of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, says, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. For now we know in part, but then I shall know even as also I am known. You see the relationship there, the relationship with God. That is really where it is, where it's at, what it amounts to. So God is not looking only for a proclamation for our words not looking only for a profession. He's not looking only for a performance, but what he is looking for is that, re- that partnership, that relationship with him. And that is the foundation of anything we're going to do for God. And that brings us to the next point. God's expectations are clear, and God's foundation is sure. So we said that the foundation is this relationship that we have with God. 
Now, I'd like to think about what exactly does that relationship look like? What does our relationship with God look like? I'd like you to note um, some of Paul's words to, to Timothy. In fact, they actually look like a commentary on these verses from Matthew 7. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul told Timothy, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth. Note the relationship. The Lord knoweth them that are his. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So what does a relationship with God actually look like? Well, first of all, there's that knowing God. Notice the verse, the, the word in that verse, the Lord knoweth them that are his. That has to do with the partnership that we have. And then there's the naming God. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ. It refers to the profession. <coughs> so after we have the relationship, after we have the knowing, that is when the naming takes significance. Note the naming does not come first. It doesn't stand alone. However, it is a vital part of our relationship with God. We really cannot have that vital relationship without professing his name. And then it goes on to talk about our performance as well. Everyone that nameth the name of Christ, makes a profession, departs from iniquity. And there it has to do with our actions, our works, our performance. After we have the knowing is also when the works take on significance. The works do not come first. They do not stand alone. Works alone will not do it. However, they are a vital part of our relationship with God. We really cannot have a vital relationship with God without professing his name and showing it in the life that we live. So back in our text in Matthew 7, verse 21 makes it clear that we need to do the will of our Father. Doing is important. But a vital relationship with God is the basis for that doing. And our motivation then will be to do the Father's will. But it all begins with a relationship. You see, without the relationship, the saying and the doing are all useless. But with that relationship, the saying and the doing take on new significance. So we're, we're looking at the question, what does a relationship with God look like? It includes knowing him. It includes naming him. It includes departing from iniquity. But I think there's one more thing that it includes as well. And that is surrendering to the lordship of Christ. One of the notable phrases in our text for today is that phrase, Lord, Lord. We see it several times in this passage. We see that same expression also in 2 Timothy, referring to the Lord. And these words, Lord, Lord, without a relationship, mean nothing. In fact, they're, they're almost an insult. If you call God Lord and you don't even have a relationship with him, it's almost like a slap in his face. Kind of an insult. It's hypocrisy. It's pretense. The person who does not 
know God and name him and live for him really has no right to call him Lord. However, when we know Christ in the way that he desires and we name his name and we depart from iniquity, then these words, Lord, Lord, become a reflection of that relationship. So our relationship with God, our profession, our performance are all intertwined and perhaps you could say encapsulated by this one word of surrender. Surrendering includes giving to God everything that we are or have or wish to be. Giving God our dreams, giving God our plans, our schedules, our futures, our homes, our vocations, our dreams, even our bodies. This week I read a news article that caught my attention, and the article was about people who claim, I have the right to my own body. Have you heard that expression lately? Lots of people claim, I have the right to my own body. You don't have any right to tell me what I'm going to do with my body. And that phrase has been used recently by the anti-vaccine crowd. They say, you can't tell me what to do. It's my choice what I do with my own body. They insist they have the right to refuse. And it's interesting that these people are often people that kind of identify themselves with a politically conservative group of people. They refuse the vaccine. They, they tend to be the political conservatives. But then this article I read pointed out that those people are using the exact same phrase, the exact same argument, as the pro-abortion people who also say, I have the right to my own body. And they identify themselves, generally, with the political liberals. So it pointed out that when someone who thinks they're a conservative uses that argument, they're actually supporting the arguments of the liberals. I found that kind of interesting. Now, my point in mentioning that is not to make a statement on vaccines or to get involved in political issues, but it's to help us to avoid and to steer clear of taking political sides. You see, when we do that, we often just confuse the issue. Because as Christians, we have a so much higher calling and identity. If we call Jesus Lord, our identity needs to be in him. He is our Lord. And we need to be careful when we join sides with groups here on earth. Often when we do that and we try to establish an identity we're doing nothing but confusing our own identity. Our identity as Christians needs to be in Christ and his kingdom. So we can come back to that question. Well, then do you have a right to your own body or don't you? Well, if you look at it from a politically perspective, perspective, that can be a little bit of a murky issue. It can be confusing. But from a Christian perspective... It is not confusing. The answer is resoundingly clear. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? So you do not have the right to yourself. That right belongs to God, not to yourself. We are surrendered to God. 
So what does a relationship with God look like? We belong to him. We are his, our words, our works, every aspect of our life. God is looking for a relationship in which his spirit expresses himself in every aspect of our lives and nothing less. So God's expectations are clear. His foundation is sure. It's a a relationship with him. But as we look at this passage here, we also notice something else. We notice that our evaluation of ourselves can be deceptive. As I look at myself, I tend to get an inaccurate image of myself. Proverbs 16.25 says, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And as we read this passage, it's, it's pretty obvious that the people that this passage is referring to had a pretty inflated opinion of themselves. Their view of themselves was not accurate. And as we view ourselves, our perspectives can be deceptive. Recently, I heard of some polls that reflect this. Found it interesting, some of these figures here. There was a large group of high school students surveyed, and the question, one of the questions they were asked is, how, long, how well do you get along with your peers? It'd be interesting to hear the responses of our high school students here. How, how well do you get around, along with your peers? And in this survey, 60% of those polled considered themselves to be in the top 10% of this category. Well, obviously, that doesn't work. 60% thought they were in the top 10%, and 25% thought that they're probably in the top 1%. So their perceptions of themselves were not accurate. In another poll of college professors, they were asked to evaluate their teaching skills. And 94% of the professors felt that they have above-average teaching skills. Well, obviously, those numbers don't line up as well. Now, I realize that when you play with statistics, you can pretty much make them say what you want to. Uh, You can survey, select groups of people, and whatever. But I think these numbers do uh, reflect how we tend to think about ourselves. I also heard of a, a preacher on the way home from church made the observation to his wife. He said, you know, honey... He said, there just aren't many really good preachers around anymore. And his wife listened to him, and it was clear to her that he was considering himself as one of those good preachers. And after a few moments, she agreed. She said, yes, you're right. There aren't many. In fact, I think there's one fewer than what you think there are. Maybe a good wake-up call for him. But we do tend to evaluate ourselves a little bit too highly. And the Bible warns us of deceiving ourselves or of being deceived. Christ warned us against allowing false prophets to deceive us in the preceding verses here. And in these verses, he's warning us against allowing ourselves to deceive ourselves. This can happen very easily. And I have a number of verses I'd just like to highlight. The Bible warns us of this problem of being deceived. And I'm going to uh, just flip through a number of verses here. 
to warn us against this idea of deception. Galatians 6, 7 says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. This verse refers to the people who feel that somehow they can make the choices they want to and still end up where they want to. They can choose the broad gate and end up at the destination of the narrow way, they think. They can choose to follow whatever teaching they want to and still produce fruit that is reflective of eternal life. God says, be not deceived. Whatsoever you sow, that you're also going to reap. 1 Corinthians 3.18, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he may be wise. When we try to become worldly wise, we tend to become spiritually foolish. Kind of like what the uh, illustration I mentioned earlier. Spiritual wisdom may appear foolish to the world. Let us not be deceived. Galatians 6, verse 3, For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, who is he deceiving? Himself. No one but himself. Let us be careful not to be deceived. 1 John 1, 8, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Let us look at ourselves carefully. James 1, 26, If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart. This man's religion is vain. So the Bible gives plenty of warnings that our self-evaluation can be deceptive. <clears throat> but the Bible not only gives warnings, it also gives us counsel about dealing with this problem. Romans 12:3. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That's the deceptive thinking. Paul says avoid that. But to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. We need to look at ourselves honestly and carefully. Several verses from Philippians, chapter 2, verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves, rather than lifting ourselves up to that high and exalted position. And then later in Philippians chapter 2, I'm just uh, highlighting some phrases here from verses 5 to 16 because of the length of them. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, following the example of Jesus, who made himself of no reputation. He became obedient. He followed God's plan for his life. Not his own desires. His desire was that this cup would pass from him. But he was obedient. And it tells us that if we allow the mind of Christ to pervade our thinking and we follow his example of making ourselves of no reputation and becoming obedient, then we may rejoice in the day of Christ that we have not run in vain, neither labored in vain." If we can allow the mind of Christ to pervade our thinking, I really don't think that we need to be worried about running our race, race in vain in hearing these dreadful words at the end of our race. So we see that man's evaluation can be deadly. And as we, our self-evaluation, and as we evaluate ourselves, 
we tend to argue and make excuses, but our arguments are pretty futile. God's word is final. God's word will always be final. We are experts at making excuses. We are all experts at making excuses. In fact, this morning before church, some of us were gathered together talking, and I was hearing some excuses. And we started, you know, blaming each other for the excuses we're making, just, you know, perhaps in fun. But I, I'm confident that every one of us here today, if we do not have a close relationship with God, we can come up with an excuse as to why we don't. We're just simply good at doing that. I can defend almost anything I want to do. I can defend myself. If it's a questionable activity, I might say, well, I can handle it. I know not everyone can, but I can handle it. Might be a problem for some, but I know when to stop. Where I might say, it's okay for me in this situation because of what he did or because of what she did. And if I can't defend it, I can always find someone else to blame it on. That's how we are. We rationalize. We blame others. We make excuses. The men in, this ver in these verses, they had their list of reasons or excuses. But I want to remind you, and I need to remind myself, we will never win an argument with God. God's word endures. God's word is true. I remember years ago in the church where I grew up, it was summer Bible school, and different men were having um, object lessons, illustrations for the devotional period at the beginning of summer Bible school. And there was a man from, from the church there, he was a farmer, a large farmer, and he brought an anvil along into church for an illustration. This was not a small anvil. This was a huge anvil. He had it on a wheelbarrow, and he brought the wheelbarrow right up the center aisle of the church, parked the wheelbarrow on the front, and he had a sledgehammer, and then he asked for volunteers to come and put a dent in that anvil. Well, there were some ambitious young men. Some of them could almost not even lift the sledgehammer, and they tried. They hit that anvil as hard as they could, but no one put a single dent into that anvil. It remained unharmed and unchanged. That's God's word. It doesn't matter what you pound God's word with. You are not going to dent God's word. Some of you might be familiar with a poem written by John Clifford. It talks about a man who was passing by a blacksmith shop and saw some broken hammers laying on the floor. And he asked the blacksmith, he looked at the hammers and he said, um, how many anvils have you worn out? over the years that you've been here. And the blacksmith said, not one. Not one, said he, and then with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so I thought, the anvil of God's word, for ages skeptic blows have beat upon. Yet though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed, the hammers gone. You might choose to argue with God. You will not win. No excuse will stand up. Doesn't matter how, think, how good you think that excuse may be. 
All we need to do is look at history. History is filled with examples. Right from the very beginning of the Bible, God came to Adam. What did Adam say? The woman that you gave to be with me, it's her fault. But that excuse did not deliver him from the consequences. Eve said, it was the serpent that beguiled me. That excuse did not deliver her from the consequences. Cain said, I don't know where Abel is. It's not my problem. I'm not my brother's keeper. But that excuse did not deliver him from the consequences. Achan said, in essence, I saw an opportunity that was just too good to pass up. It would have been terrible to let that opportunity slip by. But that excuse did not deliver him from the consequences. Samson said to his parents, get her, get her for me. She pleaseth me well. One thing led to another. But the excuse of his sensual drive could not deliver him from the gruesome consequences that he suffered. Ananias and Sapphira said, we're giving our possessions to God. That excuse did not deliver them from their consequences. And at the end of time, when the nations are divided as the sheep from the goats, and those who are on the left will say, but Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? I don't remember seeing you like that. That excuse will not keep them from hearing those fateful words, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. And in our text for today, just because you know the right language and can say, Lord, Lord, and just because you have a whole list of good works in your resume, doesn't mean that you will have any grounds for an argument when you stand before God. And those excuses will not keep anyone from hearing those awful words. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. If you do not have the relationship with God that he is looking for when you stand before him, what will your excuse be? Do you think that you can come up with an excuse that will stand a chance? Any excuse that we concoct will be the most ridiculous attempt when we stand before God. This week I read some excuses that people came up with for being late to work. And some of them sound pretty ridiculous. One of them said, well, on my way to work, I met a fire truck coming the other way. So I had to turn around and go back home just to make sure it wasn't my house that was on fire. Someone else said, a Vaseline truck crashed on the highway and all the cars just slid right off the road. Someone that was stopped by the policeman for speeding said, well, I had to drive fast so the snow would blow off my windshield so I could see where I was going. And someone that was in an accident said, I pulled out my driveway right into the bus. If that bus would have not been two minutes behind schedule, it wouldn't have happened. These excuses, we might smile or we might grimace at such lame excuses, but nothing you say to God will sound any better. Nothing that you come up with. It just simply won't work.
There's a poem based on this passage written by Jeffrey O'Hara that gives a very sobering challenge. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things I say? You call me the way, but you walk me not. You call me the life, and live me not. Ye call me master, and obey me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. You call me bread, and eat me not. You call me truth, and believe me not. Ye call me Lord, and serve me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. I realize that this challenge is pretty sobering. We cannot make any excuses, and you might ask, well, what hope do I have? How can I know? Jesus does not leave us without a path to clarity. He provides us with a path to clarity, and it's right here in chapter 7. And I'd just like to go back to the beginning of this chapter and highlight and point out some of the things, some of the teachings that Jesus gave that will help us to not just simply have an excuse, but to have assurance. It starts with self, self-examination. In chapter 7 of Matthew, verses 3, 4, 5, Jesus tells us, take a good close look at yourself. The context here is, why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, and considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? First cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the moat out of thy brother's eye. You know, we're pretty good at judging others and defending ourselves. But what Jesus is saying is we need to take a good, honest look at ourselves. You see, my tendency is to judge you so that I look better. But what Jesus is saying is that I need to judge myself so that I can help you to become better. When we allow situations in our lives, when when there's something in my life that God points out to me and I ignore that situation, then I become blinded to other faults in my life. But as I deal with the things that God shows me, then he gives me the clarity of vision to see other faults or flaws in my life as well. So it starts with self-examination. Jesus moves on in this passage then in verses 7 to 11, and he he comes back to this issue of prayer, which he had already addressed in chapter 6. But in the context here, he's reminding us, don't forget to pray. Pray for discernment. Pray that God would open your eyes to see yourself as he sees you. A prayer that we should all pray, Lord, help me to see myself as you see me. And as that pertains to spiritual discernment in this passage, never stop asking for discernment. Never stop asking. Never stop seeking. Never stop knocking. Just keep on asking, seeking, and knocking. Well, a third step in the path to clarity. Verse 12, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. But we often have a pretty good idea what's the right thing for other people to do. It's pretty easy for us to say, well, he really should have done this and this and this. Or at least we act like we know. 
If we would always do, if I would always do what I think others would do, I would probably more often do the right thing. So just simply live as you think others should live. Number four, consider the path that you're on. Verses 13 and 14. Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. Enter in at the straight gate. A good question for us to ask ourselves is, did my decision for Christ cost me anything? Anything at all? And if it hasn't, the road that you're on may not be taking you where you want to go. If your decision for Christ has not cost you anything, you might suddenly find yourself sputtering a bunch of excuses when you reach the end of the road. Has your decision cost you anything? Or are you following the multitudes caught up in popularity? If so, you may want to carefully consider where your path is leading you. So consider the path you're on and consider your influences. Verse 15 through 20, beware of false prophets. What about the people that you associate with? The people that you connect with in your work world, in your, your um, relationships, your peers, your friendships. What kind of fruit are your peers producing? Is it eternal fruit or is it temporal fruit? Is it fruit that's going to endure? Because your peers will have an influence on you. Jesus says, beware of false prophets or beware of the influence of your associates, your peers. Is their fruit going to stand the test of fire? 1 Corinthians 13, verses 13 to 15. Paul is giving us some insight here into the future. He says, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. If your closest associates are occupied and preoccupied with producing fruit that is not going to stand the test, going to stand the fire, you might want to consider what influence those people are having on your life and whether or not your fruit is going to stand the test of time. Every one of us is headed for a final test. The test is coming. And that test is not, what do you think about yourself? That test is not, what do your peers think about you? That test is, what will God say when you stand before him? May we keep our relationship with him as the most important thing of our lives, every moment of our lives, so that we do not hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you, but instead we can hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord.
Let's kneel for prayer. Father, I thank you this morning that you do not leave us to wander through life without direction, just hoping for the best and trying, relying on the words that we say or the things that we do, but that you provide a way for us to have a relationship with you. You want to know us, Lord, and Lord, our desire is this morning that we would know you that we would know your will for our lives and that we would allow you to work out that will in our lives. Lord, I pray this morning that you would search us and try us because we recognize that our own perceptions can be misleading, they can be deceiving. So I pray that you would search each one of our lives here this morning, that we would allow your spirit to speak to us and to guide us on the path that will lead us to you, so that each of us here could hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.